This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a series of conversations about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Benjamin Wilfond about ROMP. If you are not sure what that is, that's okay. You will by the end of this podcast. And stick around, because we get to some very practical, interesting advice toward the end. ROMP stands for Research on Medical Practices, which is an emerging field of research on what types of care work best in clinical practice. And these are very important but often difficult questions to answer. For example, what medication would work best when there are multiple options available? One way to figure this out is to perform a ROMP study design, which uses real-life conditions to see which medication or treatment performs best. The ethical issues posed by ROMP are very intriguing, so intriguing that a fairly large-scale study was recently performed to help define these issues a bit better. We will be sure to include a link to information on this research in the podcast description. In research on medical practices, it can be hard to describe risks and benefits. Consent poses unique challenges, and IRBs commonly struggle to deal with these nuances. Thankfully, this study on the ethical issues of ROMP has provided a lot of clarity. So let's just jump right in. I begin by asking Dr. Wilfond to define research on medical practices. Dr. Benjamin Wilfond is director of the Truman Katz Center for Pediatric Bioethics and a pulmonologist at Seattle Children's Hospital. He is professor and chief of the Division of Bioethics, Department of Pediatrics, and adjunct professor, Department of Bioethics and Humanities, University of Washington School of Medicine. He is an elected member of the American Pediatric Society and a fellow of the Hastings Center. ROMP is an, is an acronym for Research on Medical Practices, and it's an acronym that we developed as a way of trying to learn about people's attitudes about this type of research. Okay. And as we thought about the different words that are also used for things that are essentially the same thing, comparative effectiveness research, learning health systems, quality improvement, pragmatic clinical trials, all those are mouthful words that require right. definitions. And while ROMP, research and medical practice, requires a definition, we felt that was a series of words that could resonate with a person in the public right. so they could understand what we're talking about. And the key part of it was actually the explicit use of the word research in the label to be at least normatively clear that we thought this is, is research and wanted to have it tied to research rather than some other word like Quality improvement. Quality improvement. Yeah. Right. So is, is, does it overlap with comparative effectiveness research? What's the Venn diagram there? Yeah, well, you know, I, first of all, I think, it, I think that there are probably multiple different Venn diagrams that could be drawn because I'm not sure that everybody uses all these words the same way. Right. We really think of it as an umbrella term that essentially is intended to cover broadly all of these activities. Not saying that everything is within that, but the main thing is to distinguish what we call ROMP from what we also call RENT, which is research to evaluate okay. new treatments. So the key distinction is are we evaluating something new that we're trying to determine whether this works at all, or are we looking at things that people are already doing 
and asking the question, can we do it better? Okay. And much of research is about, can we do something better? Two different drugs for hypertension. Most, how do we know which one is better? Right. That's the type of question we're trying to ask. So there's a wide variety of research designs that fall under the Absolutely. umbrella. Including medical record review, okay. as well as you know, randomized comparative effectiveness research, cluster randomization, all these could be thought of as part of this more global term. And it's really a rhetorical device to ask the public what their views are on this type of topic. Right. So it seems that the conversation you're generating with your work with mm -hmm. ROP and the research you've been conducting around ROP is really important. Given that, uh, this field of research poses some unique challenges to IRB review. The regulations are really geared toward uh, discussing research on new therapies mm -hmm. or new treatments. Right. Not so much looking at what we call sometimes quality improvement right. or comparative effectiveness or all those things that fall under ROP. So do you think that these different research designs are posing challenges to IRBs that we haven't faced before? I think so. Um, in particular, uh, one has to do with the evaluation of risk. Okay. Because it really has to do with this question of how do you both determine from an IRB, IRB perspective whether, a risk of a, whether risks that people may incur are risks of clinical care or risks of research when you study it. Okay. So if a doctor is choosing between two different hypertension medications for a patient, there are risks with each medication. And those are clinical risks. Right. If that doctor is in a, approaches a patient to be in a ROMP study in which he either randomized to one of those two medications, should those be described to the patient as research risks or as clinical risks? And that, that may determine whether or not a study is considered minimal risk or more than minimal risk, which can have impact on how we think about the approach to consent under the current regulations in terms of when we can alter away right, consent. Right. And not just risk, but what about benefits? Is it hard to describe benefits in this context? Well, you know, I think that's a great question. And, and actually, I'm really glad you brought that up, because what I would actually say is that one of the ways, of, again, in order to be consistent, if we say that the risks are clinical risks, then the benefits are also clinical right, benefits, right. are not research benefits. Right. So I would describe this as, as a research category that doesn't really offer benefit to patients um, because it's really meant to structure and, lear and learn about these clinical inter interventions. So these are clinical risks, clinical benefits. Those ought to be communicated to patients as clinical risks and benefits. Right. And they, might, they may decide if, in, in circumstances where we can where the clinicians can, or the researchers can talk to patients, they may choose to be in the study or they may choose one of the interventions right. for clinical reasons, not research reasons. So that really problematizes the, some of the core principles of the IRB review process, mm -hmm. having some really clearly defined risks and benefits that we can discuss and evaluate. Uh, so what sorts of things should IRBs talk about when they see research that falls under the ROMP umbrella? Well, I do, I, I do think that so this, this is where it gets it's subtle. So even right. though I've labeled these as clinical risks and research, excuse me, as clinical risks and benefits, I still think the IRB has to be aware of and be thinking of this. And for as an example, I would think that a if a romp study was comparing two different medications was being considered, you would ideally want somebody on the IRB who is sufficiently knowledgeable about those clinical right. medications. Right. I would not want 
the review process did not include anybody who had enough, who did not have knowledge about the clinical dilemma that right. was being presented. Um, but I think the actual, but the evaluation of the research might more have to do with approaches to recruitment, approaches to consent, how data is handled, what the community thinks of this. There's a lot of, there's plenty of stuff that the IRB has to be thinking about for this type of work. Um, yes, and we might have to dig more deeply for some resources we don't use in every review process. Correct. More closely linked right. with that actual clinical practice, for example, exactly. to help us understand the nuances of the risks and right. and, and what benefit the research might accrue to the institution or in terms of contribution just to knowledge about healthcare. Right. Consent. Yes. So consent seems to be a difficult problem here, and the work that you've conducted over the past few years with um, the group you put together interested in ROP focused very heavily on the nature of consent. And you did a lot of surveying on what people think about consent and what type of consent needs to happen with a lot of ROP research. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what you did in this surveying work that sure. happened and maybe a thumbnail sketch of what you found? Yeah, well, we did, a, we did a series of focus groups and surveys of different groups, including IRB, IRB professionals, which were recruited from Primer, and also uh, two different population groups. One that was a general population group from a national survey company, okay. and another that were a group of, of patients in Spokane, Washington, who were using uh, specialty health services there. And we asked them related questions about how they thought about consent for this type of, of work. And one of the things that we did in this project um, is that we tried and we did this more, I think, more effectively with our uh, patient groups than we did with our IRB because these were sort of done iteratively and we learned each time we right, did something, right. was we really tried to frame it as trade-offs. So when we asked for the patients, we asked them, what would they, what would they, how would they like to see consent done? And the first thing I want to make a point about is to acknowledge or describe that we had different ways of, we didn't use the word consent. We talked about discussion and written permission. Okay. Discussion and verbal permission. We talked about uh, gen providing general information or no notification. So we, we, we tried to avoid the word consent in asking people what choices they work they would like. And what we found is that, particularly for patients, that, and we asked them this for medical, for studies involving randomization as well as medical record review, and we found that most people generally liked a discussion. And, be, and they were split between whether they wanted written, written, something written in writing or just verbally. We later learned that we were conflating the notion of authorization with how people learn. And in a subsequent study, we actually asked them, would they like to receive information for learning in writing or verbally versus authorization in writing or verbally? Because okay. we, we, we got that conflated in our first survey. So you found that the, the, that the patients... They, I, they didn't understand the distinction between being educated about something that's going right. to happen and actually providing permission right. about a, something, a consent. Right. Well, we, well we, we, when we asked them about the idea of, of getting written permission, um, we, 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 and later on we did some, after we did the survey, we actually went back and did some further interviews. We realized that people were answering because they said, well, I like to learn by seeing things in writing, right. not because I need to sign something. Or others okay. would say, I actually like to learn by seeing it by hearing it, but I know that they want me to write sign something. Right. So we, we, right. we decided to disaggregate that. But the key point that I, and I kind of I digressed a little bit is that 
regardless of whether it was randomized research or medical record review, most people wanted to have a conversation okay. and give some sort of permission. And that was a key finding because we, when we talked to IRB members or Primer members, we found that there was a, a very strong consensus for randomized research that written permission was necessary, but a much smaller group thought that this was necessary for medical record review. Correct, right. And in fact, most, yeah. people, most uh, many IRBs will approve chart review, you know, particularly if it's de-identified without any sort of... Oh, well, we have consent on right. those. Yeah, very but, quickly. You know, when we, in our focus groups as well as our surveys, people say, you know, we'd like to know about that. Now, the way they want to know about it is that they want to have a conversation. They also want to have that conversation with their doctor, not a researcher. Right. They don't want the conversation to be long, but they would like to have somebody say to them, you know, we're going to use your medical records to le- hopefully learn about some stuff for other patients. And many of the patients we spoke to in person said, we hope this is happening, but nobody ever tells us. So were you surprised by that, to find that, that patients really wanted to talk about stuff before it happens? Not really, because I think if we think about this in terms of a general way of human interaction, that you know people have relationships with their doctors, they research is kind of this vague thing. Yes. Um, yes. But but the the idea is that they kind of you know in fact again we talked to many patients who were had complicated medical illnesses, and they they really they're often very much aware of the fact that they are receiving benefits from previous research that's going on, and they themselves are often very excited that maybe people can learn from what they're going through, but nobody ever tells them about that. To pay it forward a little bit. Exactly, yeah. So I'm a very much of, I am very much of a huge advocate for figuring out how we can better communicate with patients individually who are doing work related to them, as well as collectively to patients in general about research and and how we're conducting it. But I see that as distinct from asking a particular patient to sign in a very structured way a long consent form that we have to have an, a research coordinator come in and explain the whole thing in detail. Right. I think this can be done in a much more streamlined, efficient way where we can engage people, provide resources for those who want to know, ideally, whenever possible, opportunities to opt out of things. and. I think this can be done much more, much more efficiently. And should that happen through the IRB? Should there be some kind of mandate to increase the level of awareness and education that happens locally, or should that happen in a different format? Well, I think this is a, I think this is a work in progress. I think that um, the regulations are vague, sometimes contradictory. Um, not and this, it's not. This is not really a fully settled area. Right. Um, I I think that IRBs have a lot of opportunity generally to be very flexible within the regulations. As a former IRB chair, um, you know the regulations can almost support almost anything that a person that a group thinks is ethically appropriate. Right. And I think that IRBs are incredibly important part of our system to share responsibility for making decisions, but we have to be willing to sort of take some risks ourselves. The IRBs. The IRBs, in terms of saying, we think this is a worthwhile thing to do, even though this may not, this there may be an issue here, and we have to really be partnering with investigators and being an objective sounding board to redirect investigators when they're going off in something that may be not appropriate, right. but also willing to ask the question, how do we both protect and respect our participants, but also encourage research in a way that really allows our communities to be better. 
when you were in the midst of your survey work, did you find uh, much distinction between how a patient would answer the question? You also had a population that was a general survey population. Mm-hmm. Did you find much difference between those two groups and responses from IRB professionals? We did. Um, I think one of the biggest striking differences, I mentioned the medical record review and randomization. The other one that was really different was who would they like to get consent from? Right. And that and the, dis- the issue there was that most like 85% of patients wanted to have their doctor talk to them about a study, whereas IRB professionals, the clinician was the least preferred person to do that. I think that was one big, really, difference between the two. That's a dramatic difference. It is. The other difference, actually, not so much of a difference because we didn't ask the question exactly the same way, but this is, I think, think one of the biggest partial contributions of our project. I call it partial because I don't think we've figured it out fully yet, Michael, is that um, we asked people the idea of trade-offs. So we, when we asked people what their initial, what they would like to see happen, they often were very much supportive of discussion and something in writing. But if we said, what if that was too difficult? Right. Would, it be okay, would you rather see the research not go forward, or would you rather, would you accept some lesser elaborate way? And almost most patients again, in these surveys, we're quite willing to accept a less elaborate way of doing this. And that, that also sounds surprising. So it, it seems like within this work that you've done, that you uncovered a few bits that were unexpected. You've been in the IRB environment for quite a while as an IRB chair as well. So were you surprised by... Um, you know, I'm not too surprised because what I realized is that this question of trade-offs is one that we rarely ask. If we ask, anybody, right. what would you okay. like? They'll say, sure, I'll take that. It's only, would you like this? You know, so you can ask me, would you like the chocolate cake, the ice cream, the apple pie? The answer is yes. Do you want all of them and also yes. gain extra weight? And they said, no, I'll, I'll defer one or the other. Um, but the other thing I would point out, though, so, so it doesn't really surprise me because often it's hard. And even I would say is I don't think we've fully d- d- established the best way of asking these okay. questions. Okay. Um, Besides, when our project was funded, there were several other projects that were funded as well uh, to look at very similar questions, and everyone chose a different methodology. And while we did surveys of people's attitudes, other groups did sort of quasi-experimental designs where they used one of those approaches and right. asked people whether they would ex- um, accept or not, and they found there wasn't a whole lot of difference okay. between the approach to consent as long as there was some, as long as there was some direct conversation. That's the kind that of feature. That was the com- you know, people are willing to do that. Direct conversation. Yeah. And we don't have a we don't have a criterion for approval that says are you having a direct conversation yeah. with the participant yeah. at some point. And it could even be tense. It could even be a, a, a less than a minute. So as as are you currently an IRB chair? No, I'm not. But as someone that has been an IRB chair uh, has participated in IRB review uh, for some time, uh, what would you tell people that are involved with IRB review of ROP research, what what specific things should we be doing? What can we do to review this kind of work better? I think there's a need for a lot of innovation in consent and okay. how we approach consent. And I think that com- from a conceptual point of view, and this is where, in a way, this is, under our current regulatory system, once we can make a determination that a particular study poses no more than minimum risk under the regulations, it opens a door to looking for alternatives to regulatory consent that may be more innovative and more effective in communicating with participants 
about the idea of the research. Then that piece of paper with a signature. Exactly, and whether and whether it's done um, on an iPad or done uh, by a video or done by a conversation with somebody. Right. I think this idea of of being innovative about consent. Now, of course, it's not only the IRB who does that. It has to. It really will need to come from the investigators. But I think the issue I would say for IRBs would be the willingness when they hear about proposals for people who want to study the consent process in innovative ways. That in order for that to happen, we actually have to sort of be willing to do research about consent itself with less restrictive consent. Right. So be willing to take some of that risk. As you mentioned exactly. earlier, so maybe IRBs need to uh, take on some of the risk in the process here. I think and so. And try new things. Right. And be, be, be partners and, be, and be, they're committed for, to oversight. So I think that, and if, if it's making an IRB uncomfortable, they can think about it. They can discuss whether there's, what tweaks they may want to do. But sometimes it's really a matter of collectively learning how we can right. do this better. We can try something new. Exactly. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.